And you're like our church. It, it doesn't look so great when you start, but it fills in rather nicely as time goes along. And I appreciate a lot of you came right here from work, hurried home, grabbed a little bite. Maybe didn't even have time to do that. And I'm so grateful for each of you being here. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, if you would please. Hebrews chapter 12. Preacher took me to lunch today at a really nice restaurant that was closed. I'm, I'm running into the last week I was preaching in Colorado and on Monday the preacher took me to a barbecue place called Jimmer's and had a sign on the door, all you can eat Monday and Saturday. Had another sign on the door that said closed Monday. <laughs> so I don't know how that works out. We went back another day on Wednesday and we talked him into giving us the all you can eat thing and uh, it was good. But he found another restaurant. And he got me a good meal. Appreciate everybody being so kind. How many of you have been here every service of this revival meeting? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night. Wonderful. I'm going to ask that again uh, tomorrow night. All right. I'm going to check it out. And Saturday night as well. Appreciate that. Stand with me if you don't mind as we look at a passage of scripture that is intriguing to me. Several years ago, our theme was from Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I came to this portion of the Word of God and I thought this will be a good review for us because what I'm about to preach to you on is something I've preached on for years. The first book the Lord ever allowed me to have put in print was called Living in an Imperfect World. It's now called When You Can't Just Get Over It and it has a chapter in there about this subject. And I thought this will be a good review. But as I read this portion and studied it, I saw something I had never seen before. Let me give you a little freebie. If you hear a preacher tell you the Bible means something and you look at it and say, huh, I'd never know it meant that if he hadn't told me, it's probably not true. The Bible's not the Da Vinci Code. It was written to be read and understood. Uh, but if you hear a preacher say something and say, wow, I never saw that before, but that's what it says, it's probably true. So here's our text, looking at Verse 14 of Hebrews 12, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I used to think that meant that I wouldn't see the Lord if I didn't have peace and holiness in my life. But I think now that it means if I don't have peace and holiness in my life, no one will see the Lord in me. Troubled people aren't Christ-like. Unholy people aren't Christ-like. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Our Heavenly Father, would you guide me by your Spirit, I pray, to say exactly that which would please you and which would help your people. Bind the devil and his demons. Keep them from snatching the seed of your word out from the soil of our hearts. And then, Lord, thank you for the obedience and responsiveness at invitation time. And I pray that again tonight, all of us to whom you speak would be willing not only to indicate it in our own lives, maybe lift a hand, but to bend a knee as well. And we promise to praise you for what you do 
Lord, I pray that a long time from now, people may have forgotten the time, the place, the person giving the message, but that the work that you do in our hearts would be something that we would still live out and refer to regularly. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know why people say that because you're going to sit down anyway. Nobody stands up for the whole sermon, as far as I know. I used to preach about bitterness. And I would say you've got a root of bitterness in there. And bitterness is a poison that you feed yourself. It's a cancer. It leach up from the out, inside out. And you've got to get it out. Get it out. Get rid of the root of bitterness. And people come to an altar and they'd pray. And they'd say, God, I want to deal with my bitterness. I'd counsel people and I'd say, Lord, I want to deal with my bitterness. And it would work for a while. And then something would happen. The little girl would turn the same age her mother had been when a terrible event happened to the mother. An anniversary of an awful event would take place. A person who'd been out of somebody's life for a long time would come back in. And all those feelings and all those thoughts would roil back up to the surface. And people would say it didn't work. I'm going to make four statements. And then have three points to the sermon. When I say number three, don't get excited because it's longer than points one and two. Point, uh, statement number one. Everyone has been hurt. Everybody's been hurt. Not the same way, not to the same extent, but everybody's been hurt. In the world you shall have tribulation. Statement number two, these hurts can turn to bitterness. They don't have to, but they can. Bitterness is a hurt you hang on to. Statement number three, God tells us to respond to these hurts with grace. Now we say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is unmerited favor. I'm okay with those definitions, but they really don't comprehend what grace is. Let's supposing I came by your house and I said, I would like to have a sandwich and you gave me a sandwich. Now that's unmerited favor, but I hardly say it was grace. Wow. I went to Brother Wally's. You know how, let me tell you the amazing grace he showed me. He gave me a sandwich. I only had two bites out of it. But let's suppose that I, I, let's suppose that I go by your house and I take an ice pick and I puncture the tires in all your vehicles. And then I put soap or wax over all your windows and screens. <coughs> and then I kick out some shrubs and plants that you have. <coughs> and then I put sugar in the gas tank of your car. Then I knock on your door and say, I'm hungry. Could I please have a sandwich? If you gave me a sandwich then, that would be grace. Grace is more than unmerited favor. Grace is favor bestowed on those who have demerit. Did you know when the Lord Jesus died for us, we were his enemies? So essentially, for the purpose of our <coughs> discussion about this passage, I'm trying to quit smoking. You pray for me. The purpose of our discussion this evening, grace <coughs> is giving good to people that deserve bad. So statement number one, everybody's been hurt. Statement number two, these hurts can turn to bitterness. Statement number three, God tells us to respond to these hurts with grace. But statement number four, answered 
the situations, the people that had dealt with it, and then all those feelings came back and they said it didn't work. Can I ask you to look at the passage because I don't believe you'll find anything in there about removing the root of bitterness. The inference of the passage is that the roots are always there and every once in a while they spring up. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. What happens if I fail of the grace of God? Well, then if a root of bitterness springs up, it'll trouble me and thereby many will be defiled. So here's the fourth statement. I'd never made this before. You wouldn't find it in the book when you can't just get over it. Here's the fourth statement. Dealing with these hurts is not a one-time experience. But an exercise that must be repeated every time the hurts spring up. Now, we don't much like exercise in 21st century America. Uh, uh, you got high blood pressure. What do I have to do? Ah, uh, you need exercise, lose weight. How about if you just give me a pill? Okay, I'll give you a pill. We don't want exercise. We want a pill. We want an operation. We want a quick fix. The interesting thing about exercise, I exercise. I always tell people that because they would not suspect this to be the case otherwise. I usually do an hour uh, on the elliptical three to five times a week, sometimes six times in a week. Now I've been down here, and your weather's beautiful, and it's not quite so beautiful in Michigan, so I've gone out walking, and there is an elliptical in the motel. It's not one of the brands I most favor use. It's not a bad brand, but uh, so I just, I've been out walking. Now, now if I, let's say I go in the elliptical, and I work out really hard, and I get my heart rate up to a high rate of 150 and an average of 140, and I get in 8,000-some steps, and, and man, I burn over 1,000 calories, and I really give it my best. Did you know if you could measure everything about my health before that exercise and after that exercise, the difference would be so negligible as to be indiscernible. If you have to choose between exercising one time or never, choose never. But wait a minute. I exercise a lot. I've been doing it for a long time. I'm a healthy fat man. Say, why don't you jog? I used to. I caused that one earthquake out in California. <laughs> you can check it out. I'll show you this afternoon, this, after the service on my Fitbit app on my phone. My resting heart rate is always in the low 60s or the high 50s. I have low cholesterol. I have a low heart rate. I have a low IQ. If I do it over and 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 over again, then it has some effect. The Bible tells us to exercise ourselves unto godliness. Dealing with these hurts is not a one-time experience. But an exercise that must be repeated every time that the hurts spring up. So let's look at our text and Point number one, the first thing I want you to notice in the text is there are roots. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up, thereby trouble you and, uh, trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Now, think about roots. The first thing I want you to know about roots is that they are covered. You have beautiful trees around here. You're the city of trees. 
and gorgeous trees. And I've heard people compliment sometimes the leaves on a tree, the blossom on a tree, the fruit of a tree, even the bark of a tree, the branches of the tree. I've never heard anybody say, wow, look at that tree. It has great roots. They're covered. I don't see you tonight. I see the expression you choose to place on your face. Pretended interest, bored indifference. I don't see you. I don't know all the things that have happened in your life. It's covered. Second thing about these roots, they are caustic. They're called roots of bitterness. There's some experiences we've had. There's some people that have come into our lives. There's some things we've been through. And the mere memory of them can make us pucker up like we've been sucking on a lemon. They're bitter. But there's a third thing about these roots. They come up. Lest any root of bitterness springing up. Somebody asked me this the other day. I think it was Brother Weeks that gave me this uh, thought. And, uh, and I'll, I'll use it tonight. Uh, if I took an orange and squeezed it really hard, what would come out? Orange juice. Very good. I can tell them in Florida, but you got that really fast. That's great. Why would orange juice come out of an orange if I squeezed it really hard? Because that's what's in there. If I squeezed it just right, could I get grapefruit juice out of it? If I squeezed it hard enough, could I get tomato juice out of it? No, you can't get anything out of it that's not in it, no matter how hard you squeeze it. Here's what we say. Well, I'm not really like that. That's not me. I'm not usually that way. Did you know nobody has ever hit their thumb with a hammer and said a bad word they've never heard before? The only words can come out are the words that are in there. A young man was preaching an early sermon in his ministerial career, just still in school, and He'd studied hard and read a lot of other preachers. And there was a dear lady about three rows back, older lady. And, and she kind of thought she'd heard some of that material before. And she's listening along and she said, that's Charles Spurgeon. Well, man, that was a little out of line, but he shrugged it off. And he, he's preaching along. And she thought she recognized another part of the sermon. She said, that's Billy Sunday. So he kind of stared at her, figured he'd let her know she shouldn't do that. Didn't affect her a bit. He preached a little longer, and she said, that's D.L. Moody, and he'd had enough. And he said, lady, would you shut up, please, and let me finish this sermon. And she said, that's you. <laughs> Those unkind words spoken to our spouse on the way to church tonight, that's you. That harsh attitude that you demonstrate when your children disobey, that, that's you. These roots are caustic, these roots are covered, and these roots come up. But not only think about the roots, think about what the Bible tells us here about the results of bitterness. I find this really interesting. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. The first result is difficulty for you. For the one who hangs on to the hurt, for the one who's been damaged so badly they think that they can't let it go. Now, why do we hang on to those things? Why do we keep remembering those? Why do we keep telling those things to people? I'll tell you why. Because that person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. And I understand. 
it'll always be true that your husband left you, that your best friend betrayed you, that somebody you trusted stabbed you in the back, that you were unjustly passed over for a promotion. It'll always be true. We think, I just, I just can't let that go. Those people don't deserve it. But here's what the Bible says. When you hang on to the hurt, it doesn't hurt them. It hurts you. Bitterness is a poison you feed yourself. I was in college. My dad came to me and told me that a son of a preacher friend of his who was also in college with me had told his dad, and his dad told me that I said I hated that young man and I wanted to punch him in the face. All right, you're liking this part of the sermon, aren't you? <laughs> Amen. It's Ezekiel, right? Is that you, Ezekiel? Okay, hang in there, Ezekiel. It'll get even better. Maybe. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, Dad, I never said that. And my dad said, well, son, you need to make it right. I said, Dad, why should I make it right? I didn't do anything wrong. I was looking for some support here. <laughs> hey. Who is responsible to take the initiative when there's a problem between Christians? Is it the person who has caused the offense or the person who has taken offense? Matthew chapter 5. The Lord Jesus says, Therefore, if thou bringest thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, you're the one who's caused the offense. He's got something against you. Maybe fair, maybe unfair, maybe right, maybe wrong. But he's upset with you. Leave there thy gift before the altar. Don't miss that part. It doesn't say quit tithing. Leave your gift to the altar. Then first go and be reconciled to thy brother. Then come and offer thy gift. So the Lord Jesus extremely explicitly and very clearly says, if somebody's upset with you, you've caused the offense, you go to them and say, hey, I understand I've upset you. What can I do to make this right? But wait a minute. Matthew chapter 18. The Lord Jesus says, if you have aught against your brother, go to your brother alone. And if he'll hear you, you've gained your brother. If that doesn't work, take two or three people. If that doesn't work, tell it to the church. But the Lord Jesus says, now you're the one who's taken offense. Now you're the one who's feeling the problem, the hurt. Now you're the one who has been offended, and you go to your brother. So in Matthew 5, he said, if you cause the offense, go to your brother. Matthew 18, he said, if you've taken offense, go to your brother. In other words, the Lord Jesus said, don't sit around trying to figure out whose fault it is. Just get it right. So I went to this young man. And I said, my dad said that your dad said that you said that I said that I hated your guts and I wanted to punch your face in, and I never said that. And you know what happened. He burst into tears. He apologized for slandering me. He fell into my arms. We became the best of friends. And just two weeks ago, he, after a very successful business career, wrote me a check for $500,000. This is a tough crowd. I don't think I'm getting anybody to buy what I'm trying to sell. No, you know what happened? He said, eh, it's okay. You lied about me to your father, got me in trouble with my father, and uh, it's okay. It didn't work. It didn't. I obeyed God. I honored my father. I did what the Bible said. I had a clear conscience. I made what effort I could to take care of the situation. Years went by. 
I graduated at the age of 20, was a youth pastor for a couple of years, 22 years of age, became pastor of First Baptist at Bridgeport. Been there a little while, three or four or five years maybe. And uh, we were having a big day, going to try to have 500 in attendance for the first time in the history of the church. And this young man was working with his dad, and they had a singing group, maybe 14, 15 people in the group. So I invited that group to come be part of our service that day and do special music, and we had 503 in attendance. So one way to have big days is to invite large groups. And he and I ate together. We had a great time. Talked about our friends in college and where they were serving God and what was going on. Everything was great. A couple of weeks later, I got a letter from him. Dear Brother Willette. I needed to write and apologize to you because for all these years I have harbored against you not bitterness. Here's another freebie. Gave you one during the scripture reading. Here's another one. No extra charge. Did you know I've had limited success helping bitter people acknowledge their bitterness? I'll show them what the Bible says. I'll tell them what they've said to me. I'll say, I think you have a problem with bitterness. And the typical response is, I'm not bitter. Got it. <laughs> Don't know how I could have made that mistake. Not bitterness, he said, but a trace of resentment. I'm not sure, but I think trace of resentment is Greek for bitterness. The preacher can tell you that. He's a Greek expert. I'm not. My dad used to say he knew a little Greek and a little Hebrew. He said a little Hebrew ran a deli and a little Greek ran a laundry. <laughs> but... Uh, Here's the interesting thing. Now, that's a long time ago. My, that young man, now a little older, older than me, uh, he, uh, he was at my father's 85th birthday. He came to my mother's funeral. We were fine. I would, was at his brother-in-law's funeral. But all those years that he harbored against me, that trace of resentment, it never bothered me one time. Never kept me from enjoying a lunch with my wife or going out with one of my members or preaching the Word of God or fellowshipping with our church family. <clears throat> Bitterness brings, result number one, difficulty for you. It always hurts the person who hangs on to it worse than hurts the person that has hurt you. But there's a second result, the steady root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. It goes on to use the example of Esau, who for one more sold the bread, sold his birthright. Esau was bitter. I don't think Esau was, I don't think Esau was particularly, I think he had some bitterness, but he's not given us here as an example of bitterness. He's an example of somebody who is defiled by the bitterness of others. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, thereby many be defiled, lest there be any profane person as Esau. Rebecca had been told by God that her younger son, Jacob, would be the leader, and Esau, the older, would serve him. God didn't do it. God wasn't keeping his promise. God's plan wasn't going into effect. And Isaac got old, and he said, I'm about to die. He said, Esau, uh, bring me some venison like I love to eat, and uh, I'll give you the blessing. I already sold the birthright. Rebecca heard that and she said, I can't let that happen. God made a promise he hadn't taken care of. I'll take matters into my own hand. And she got her son, Jacob, to lie to her own husband. Isaac was blind and she took some goat from the flock and dressed it up to taste like the venison. And she put some sheepskin or goat skin on Jacob's arms because he was smooth skinned and Esau was hairy. And, and she said, you go in and tell your daddy this and he'll give you the blessing and you'll have it just like you're supposed to. 
And so Jacob lies to his father. He said, well, it smelled like Esau. He's wearing one of Esau's robes. Voice like Jacob's, but you feel like Esau. All right, I'll give you the blessing. And Esau is defiled by his mother's bitterness. The Bible calls him a profane person. The Bible says there's no place, the word means, in his heart, in his life, for God. The Bible tells us that Esau saw that his parents didn't like him marrying the daughters of Heth, and he did it just for that reason, just to cause them grief and consternation and heartbreak. And, and I'm here to remind you that when you're bitter, it never stops with you. It always affects somebody else. I've preached in churches where there's just a cloud over the services. I could tell the funniest joke or repeat the most moving illustration and nothing would pierce the darkness and i stayed around long enough to find out the preacher was bitter and it affected the entire congregation you can't be bitter it'll not only trouble you it'll defile others it'll harm your children it'll damage anybody you try to minister to it'll hurt the children that you deal with in sunday school it never ends with the person who has it it always defiles somebody else Results of bitterness. Difficulty for you, defilement for others. What do you do about it? What's the remedy for bitterness? Well, essentially the remedy is grace. God says just do good to people who deserve bad. Easier said than done. Let's break it down a little bit, shall we? How am I going to do good to people who deserve bad? Well, I can do that, number one, if I have faith. Let me ask you a question. Answer out loud if you don't mind. Is there a God? Very good. You did way better than the Democrats at their convention a few years ago. Really good. Does he love you? Did he promise to work all things together for good if you love him and are called according to his purpose? So can anything happen to me that God won't use for good? That doesn't mean everything is good. God didn't say all things are good. He said all things work together for good. If I have faith to believe that, I can do good to people who deserve bad because I know God's going to make it all work out. Joseph was gracious to his brothers and, and when they, we always use that verse, you meant for evil, God meant it for good and that's really true. I like even better where Joseph said to his brothers, he said, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. God put me in that pit where you kept me. God put me at Potiphar's. God put me in prison. And then God put me in the palace. And all those things that seemed like bad things, God was working together to get me where I wanted to be to save much people alive. And to fulfill the dream he'd given me when I was a young boy. Roger Powell was our music director. Moved up from Georgia to become part of our staff. His little daughter, Jessica, second of his children, was eight years old that night she ran up to me and gave me a big hug, and she said, Uncle Preacher, I'm going to God's country tonight. She was going back to Georgia to be in a wedding. Sweet little girl. Always said from the time she was really young that God wanted her to be a missionary. They rented a van to make the trip more comfortable. They hadn't got very far, about an hour, hour and a half from our church in their home. The roads were clear, except the overpass was a little icy. And they slid on that overpass, and the van smacked against a guardrail. It was a minor injury, the bumps and 
bruises, nothing really required medical attention, except that the window by Jessica's seat popped out when the van hit the guardrail. And she didn't have her seatbelt on. She was trying to lie on the floor and sleep. And she got thrown out the window and smashed to the pavement and died. They called me middle of the night, 2 a.m., something like that. I drove down to Ann Arbor and picked up he and his wife and their remaining children. Older daughter, younger daughter, little baby boy. He told me on the way back, the hospital chaplain came up to him and he very piously said what they told him to say in chaplain school. He said, well, you know, there are some things God can't help, but God wants to be there to help us through those things that he can't help. Shut up. <laughs> Not my God. Our God sitteth in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Roger Powell, in spite of the grief of that awful event and that terribly unexpected occurrence, looked into the eyes of that unsaved man and he said, Mister, this was not an accident. This was an appointment. Faith. You say, what's good about your eight-year-old daughter dying in a car wreck? I didn't say everything was good. I said it worked together for good. Well, how does God bring good out of that? I don't know all that God was doing. But I know Roger Powell sat down, wrote a little tract about it, told the story of Jessica, put the gospel in there. He put a picture on the front and printed it. And thousands and thousands and thousands of those tracts have been printed, and hundreds of people, I believe, have trusted Christ as their Savior by reading. We have people from other churches, and they'll come by and they'll say, can I get some of the Jessica tracts? I know that we do a big Patch the Pirate play every other year in our school. She died in December. We did the play in April. We did the Patch the Pirate story. Patch the Pirate goes to the jungle. It's about a missionary. And since Jessica had always wanted to be a missionary, we dedicated the play to her, put her picture on the back of the program. We got all done. I gave the invitation. And a young man came from over here, and he said, God wants me to be a missionary. And a young lady came behind him and she said, God wants me to be a missionary. And Rodney Rupel and Becky Swain went off to Bible college and graduated and then went to the land of Cambodia where they served for over 20 years. Their son is now our youth pastor. I don't know everything God was doing that night, but I know some things he was doing. Faith. Second part of the remedy is forgiveness. Yeah, I know you got to forgive and forget. Not really. Your mind is so constructed, it's really hard to forget anything. What, what is your name? <laughs> Wally. Would you please forget your name, Brother Wally? Uh, what is your name? <laughs> no. What mechanism could he employ to forget his name? He can do anything to forget that. You, you're not always able to remember everything when you want it, but it's all in there somewhere. Like the old guy I heard about, talking to his friend, said, how you doing? He said, I'm feeling a lot better since I took that new medicine. Oh, he said, that's great. What are you taking? He said, oh, oh, man. He said, uh, what, what's a flower? A little pretty smelling, got, got thorns on it, usually red. And the guy said, Rose? Yeah. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that medicine I've been taking? <laughs> Not as bad as the two old guys I heard about sitting on their front porch and one of them said to the other, I always forget, was it you or your brother that was killed in the war? <laughs> Forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. 
You know, the literal definition of forgive is to cancel a debt. We use that term. We say we're going to forgive that debt. Let's say I borrow $10 from the preacher. I say, I'll give it to you tomorrow. I just need $10 right now. I see him tomorrow at lunch. I say, preacher, I'm sorry. I forgot the $10. I'll give it to you uh, at church. And I see him at church. I'm sorry. I forgot the $10. I'll give it to you Wednesday morning. We go to the airport. And we get in the car to go to the airport. I say, man, I'm sorry. I forgot the $10. And he says, brother, well, don't worry about it. Just forget it. I'll cancel the debt. Now, he can do that. Or he can say, I wish you'd pay it to me because I don't want to have a bad attitude towards you and feel that you're not honest. He can do that, too. What he can't do is tell me he forgives the debt and then go tell you that I owe him 10 bucks. Or tell you that he loaned me $10 and I never paid him back. Or tell somebody else that. Or see me five years later and say, hey, you never did pay me that 10 bucks, you know. No, 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 if he forgives it, it's canceled. There's no debt anymore. Best definition I ever read of forgiveness outside the Bible was by a man named Tom Souter in a little book called The Whole of No Hope. He said, forgiveness is agreeing to live with the unchangeable circumstances of another's sin against you. Agreeing to live with the unchangeable circumstances of another's sin against you. I heard about a man went to a marriage counselor. Now, that's not a true story because men never go to marriage counselors. Unless they're dragged in by their wife. Men don't have any problems that they admit to. But he went in and the marriage counselor said, what's the problem? He said, well, it's my wife. He said, every time we get in a disagreement and an argument, she gets historical. He said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She brings up everything I've ever done wrong. Do you know how short the argument would be if you could only talk about that one incident? That one muddy footprint on the kitchen floor? Men are terrible creatures. They, they put mud on the floor. They leave stuff all over the house. Men treat the house like women treat the garage. Or the inside of the car. There must be some female gene that makes women think they need to put little scraps of paper inside every opening in the automobile. I don't know how, why they do that, but there's a little gum wrappers here and straw wrappers there. No, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cancel the debt. That means you don't bring it up anymore. You have to, in your mind, remember that you've forgiven them. You have to extend grace to them in your own heart all over again, but you don't talk to them or anybody else about it anymore. Third part of the remedy, I would say, the Bible says we have forgiveness by His grace. Third part of the remedy is to fight. You see, these thoughts are going to keep coming back. They're going to spring up. And you've got to deal with them. Now, I heard Dr. Tom Malone, great preacher and a wonderful man, preached for me very, very many times. I preach for him a lot. And Dr. Malone said the devil was getting after him and the devil was bothering me. He's riding along in the car. And he said, I stopped the car and I said to the devil, this is my car. I pay the note on it. The title's in my name. Get out of here. It's a great story. But it's not how the Bible tells us to deal with the devil when he brings wrong thoughts in our mind. By the way, the devil can put thoughts in your mind. That's what Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira. Why hath Satan filled thine heart? to lie against the Holy Ghost. You're not responsible for every thought that comes into your mind. 
just sometimes have a thought so terrible. You say, how could I even think that? You can think it because the devil put it there sometimes. But the Bible says this, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Bob Jones Sr. said it this way. He said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep him from building a nest in your hair. My method is to give him very little material with which to work. So what do you do? Well, the Lord Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, gave us an example. The devil said, if you're really the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And the Lord Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Well, I know some Bible, too. He said you wouldn't, he wouldn't suffer you to dash your foot against the stones. So why don't you jump off the pinnacle of the temple and prove that's true? And Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And the devil took him to a high place and showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, all this shall be thine if thou wilt bow down and worship me. And the Lord Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Three times the devil tempted him. Three times the Lord Jesus, who could have just told the devil to get out of there, could have sent him back to his eternal dwelling place. Who was the King of kings and Lord of lords, gave us an example of answering with Scripture. So here's what you do. You find out those thoughts that keep coming back, those things that take your mind off course, and you get some Bible verses that answer them. The book Rewired has a list of them. You don't have to buy it. You can borrow it from your preacher, photocopy it. And you memorize that verse, and while you're memorizing it, you keep it on a card or put it someplace you can access it on your smartphone. And every time that thought comes, you quote that verse out loud if you can. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the Word of God. Maybe you can't just say the verse, and you may have to do it a thousand times a day. I can't prove to you what I'm about to suggest, just my opinion. I can't give you a Bible verse on that. But I think after a while, you won't have to do it 500 times a day, and then 200 times, and then 100 times, and then hardly at all. I'll tell you why I think that's true, because the devil will get tired of every time he tries to draw you away from God by bringing those thoughts back, chasing you closer to God and the Word of God. What's the remedy? Grace, giving people good when they deserve bad. How do I do that? Well, I have faith that God's going to work it out for good. I forgive them like God forgave us by His grace, and I fight. I work on my mind because whoever controls your mind controls you. The battle for success or failure in the Christian life is fought and won in the mind. I heard about a young lady years ago who had been attacked by a man and abused in the most awful way imaginable. She went to her pastor, and her pastor gave her some really strange but biblical advice. He said, well, the Word of God tells you to love your enemy. That is not what you want to hear after an experience like that. But the Bible's so practical, it goes right on after that to tell us how to do it. Love your enemies, what do you do? Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that persecute you and despitefully use you. And that young lady, in the counsel of her pastor, covenanted that she would do that. She but only say good things about the man. Maybe not much to think of, but wouldn't say anything bad. 
She covenanted to do good things, so she's going to say good things about him. She's going to do good things to him. And she maybe sent him some money while he was in jail to, to meet personal needs anonymously. And then she prayed for him. Not for God to judge him, not for God to give him a long sentence like he deserved, but for God to save him, for God to change him, for God to reveal himself to that man. And it did not happen all at once. It was an exercise. But gradually, over a long period of time, the cloud lifted and the burden was removed and her spirit was restored. And she went on, got married, had children, had a great life. Years and years went by. She was in a grocery store and she came to the end of an aisle and turned and came face to face with that man. His sentence had been finished. He'd been released from jail. And she looked into his eyes and felt nothing. The word of God faithfully applied over a long period of time had given her victory. Everybody's been hurt. These hurts can turn to bitterness. God tells us to respond to these hurts with grace. But dealing with these hurts is not a one-time experience, but an exercise that must be repeated every time the hurt springs up. Our Father in heaven, I would ask that you'd speak to the hearts of your people. I'd ask, Lord, that you'd help us just to be honest before you, and I'd ask that you'd take this truth of your word. If we're to have revival, we certainly have to be right with you, and we can't be right with you if we're not right with others. It really doesn't matter how they respond or if we can even locate them. It matters that we cancel the debt, trust you to work it for good. And then every time the thought comes up, deal with it with your word. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. I wonder if you're here tonight and you say, Brother Willette, I'm saved, heaven's my home. The Lord Jesus is my Savior. And I need to put into practice some of what I heard tonight from the Word of God. The Spirit of God's talked to me about that, spoken to me, convicted me. Pray with me about that. If you say that, would you hold your hands up high? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. I wonder if anybody's here tonight and you say, I don't know I'd go to heaven if I died right now. Did you know God loves you so much he wants to spend forever with you? <laughs> Think about that. I wonder who would say, I don't know I'm going to heaven, but I wish I knew that. Pray for me. When you pray for the other folks, if you say that, slip your hand up high. I'll see if you can put it down. Thank you, young man. God bless you. Thank you, young lady. God bless you. Anybody else? Father, work in our hearts. I pray for those two that said they don't understand for sure. They have a home in heaven. Help that to become clear and certain in their lives tonight. And of all of us who indicated a need by an uplifted hand to be willing to respond obediently. You told us that you'd revive our land when we humbled ourselves. Lord, they tell me that word humble literally means to bend the knee. Help us to be willing not only to raise a hand, but to bend the knee tonight. I pray for each person whose hand was lifted. Give them grace to take this next step. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you